0: Hello everybody and welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show, and this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. The American Shoreline is an amazing place. What a what a what a variety of things you can do down on the waterfront. Restaurants, bars, beautiful sightseeing, that kind of thing. We all love that the tourism industry but there's another part of the american shoreline that is critical uh, to the community, the culture and the economy of the shoreline and that are that is working waterfronts tyler and we're going to get a chance to dive into that subject today
1: yeah you know we've talked about it peter on the show many times what's going on around the american shoreline in you know these old older american communities where there's a history a culture of Uh, fishing, of even, you know, here in Texas, we've got our offshore workers, people who are in the oil and gas industry. Uh, In New England, we've talked about the impacts of the the lobster fishery and the changing fishery and how that's changing waterfronts there. I mean, these these are important parts of communities along the shoreline that represented their prosperity, that represented their way of life, And of course, as we know, around the American shoreline, these places are changing. Uh, There's quite powerful economic forces at play here. And today we're going to dive in and learn more about uh, how these industries are faring uh, in the modern era, but also, of course, it being the COVID era, how COVID-19 and uh, our restrictions and our changes in economy have uh, impacted these industries.
0: Yeah, and uh, we're going to have a great guest to talk to today, a couple. um, And I'm really excited to introduce our listeners to the National Working Waterfronts Network and Nicole Fagan. But before, as we say,
1: we dive into that word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering, with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Rivella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. So Nicole Fagan
0: is the chairman uh, chairperson of the board of the National Working Waterfronts Network. She is also a coastal management specialist at the University of Washington College of the Environment. Uh, she's coming to us today from Seattle, Washington, one of the great coastal cities in America on Puget Sound. Spectacular place. Welcome to the American Shoreline podcast, Nicole.
2: Hi, Peter and Tyler. Thanks. I really appreciate you inviting me to join you today to talk about the National Working Waterfront Network and I'm gonna take add one small addition is that I am with Washington Sea Grant, which is part of the National Sea Grant organization that focuses on marine issues throughout the United, coastal United States and Great Lakes. But about National Working Waterfront, I'm really excited to introduce this to your podcast. Best way to describe us is we are a nationwide network and we include businesses and industries, nonprofits, local governments, communities, state, federal government, universities, sea grants, the whole range of individuals that are really de- dedicated to supporting and preserving and really enhancing our nation's working waterfronts and waterways. That's who we are.
1: Well, Nicole, that's a, a great description. And I can see why an organization, a national organization that concerns itself with the uh, health vitality and you know, the existence of these waterfronts is necessary, help our audience understand what the current state of play is with our waterfronts. I mean, we, as Peter mentioned in the opening, we, we know that we love them. We know that there's a nostalgia and a, a beauty to them even. But uh, what, po- help us understand what's actually going on. What are, what are the trends and what is the state of play?
2: Absolutely, Tyler. I mean, this is really important for everybody to understand the other side of our waterfronts. Like you started out, Peter, that we all love to go to the waterfront and use it for all different kinds of things of recreation, etc. But, you know, these water dependent industries that are on our waterfronts, they really face a lot of critical challenges. And some of them are brand new with COVID. And it's, it's an isu- it's, the issue is how do we balance, how do we de- balance the need for these recreational interests and development pressures with, uh, how do we keep these businesses growing that really have no other place to go? They are dependent on being on our shorelines and on the waterfront. And we need to find ways to have growth that's equitable and sustainable really
0: well a couple of things jumped out at me mark uh, nicole when you said uh that and it, it's this water dependent uses that there are certain industries and practices and economic sectors that depend on water access and the things that jump to mind of course uh ports and uh, sh- shipping um, aquaculture, uh, the fishing industry, you know, the, when you say working waterfronts, what comes to mind for me is Gloucester, Massachusetts, and the long history of the cod fishery in the, in the Northeast, uh, the lobster fishery in Maine. I also think about famous cannery road, Tyler, from your great state of California. Um, and we have to, I, I guess, what's happening a lot around the country is, uh, these working communities, um, occupy some pretty special real estate. And sometimes uh, the higher value is to put a condominium on it, but we we can't do that if we want to maintain this economic sector.
2: Am I kind of going down the right path? Absolutely, absolutely. It's trying, like I said, it's trying to find that balance and to protect. These are really important jobs. They're actually really good paying jobs. And we we need to keep that, to keep our economy going. And so finding a way to keep that there. And I wanna put in another Piece of this, which is really interesting, is uh, preserving that history. There's some really wonderful hisp- uh, waterfront, maritime historic sites and uh, uh, boats and industries that have been preserved, and it, that's part of it too. So it's a it's a real it's a network, it's a community, and raising awareness about that, including like what you're going to talk about aquaculture which is very much a part of that, is really something that the American people I don't think we understand it very well and so what I, I'm hoping we can do is we can just set this up as a conversation with y- y'all to present more of what is the network and what is it doing and what's out there and and who do we who do we know or not know recognizes out there that is part of this industry that we should all should know more about.
1: Well, Nicole, you're you're keying in uh, to some some things that we absolutely talk a lot about on this program. But uh, one is the the absolute interconnected nature of uh, the American shoreline, and um, like all coastal issues, uh, the the spectrum of concerns and interests that these waterfronts are contending with are immense but we we absolutely knew know that there is a process whereby as peter said this this waterfront area can be extremely valuable and uh, it's it's quite easy to see it slip away from being a working waterfront into uh maybe kind of a disneyfied working waterfront and then ultimately there is no longer any working it's just a, a boardwalk where people walk around and there's restaurants and stuff. And we've seen it all over the place. Uh, and it just gets, it, it shows you the balance that we need to think about. I mean, we're talking about jobs, as you say, we're talking about people, we're talking about voters. We're also talking about people that furnish food, people that are out on the water and are experiencing the environment firsthand in a way that, you know, being a tourist uh, eaten at a restaurant just doesn't. And so I think that one of the things we're excited to explore are the various ways that these waterfronts enrich their communities uh through providing food through providing sustainability and access direct access to uh the natural world what what do, am i on point with that what's your uh, what's your take on that statement
2: you're absolutely spot on. I could not have said it better. So, you you're you're hired. <laughs> well, I love it. this is
1: I, we're stoked for this. Peter, let's talk about who we're going to have on in the next segment.
0: Yeah, and uh, Nicole was kind enough to uh, introduce us to a couple of her partners and members in the National Working Waterfronts Network that we are going to have a full-blown conversation with. Margaret Colaro is the executive director of the West Coast Shellfish Growers Association, an organization that represents a very important economic sector as a working waterfront community, shellfish growers on the West Coast. Uh, And that includes Alaska uh, for for, uh, Margaret's group. And joining her will be Bob Renal, who is the Executive Director of the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association. These are two organizations that that represent the interest of a important working waterfront community on the American shoreline. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Margaret and Bob Tyler.
1: Absolutely, and and uh, important thing to keep in mind as we move into that segment is that uh, we're talking about important aquaculture uh communities uh they call themselves growers apparently but you know these are folks who go out and in bays and offshore grow food uh in i'm we're gonna learn out learn how i'm very interested and uh you know, there's there's ecological benefits to these people uh, conducting their activities, I'm, sh- I'm sure, certainly with oysters and stuff. But I'm also interested in how uh, COVID has impacted these industries. We, we were discussing before the show just how much shellfish is consumed at restaurants. And uh, it's been a while, Peter, since I've ordered, uh, uh, you know oysters or clams or mussels at the at the homestead you know uh so it'll be interesting to dive in with bob and margaret i agree
0: and uh nicole we want to thank you ladies and gentlemen nicole fagan who has helped us set this show up and we hope to hear from regularly uh, as she takes us down the path of america's working waterfronts and introduces us to the characters and the business people who who occupy this field uh, but nicole fagan uh chair of the board of the national working waterfronts network uh everybody should check them out nicole how would people learn more about your organization
2: we have a website the national workingwaterfronts.com all one word and lots of good information and resources and connections and that's what we want to do: is provide support for everybody out there and working in national working waterfront issues.
0: Fantastic! So, if you're if you're in the business uh, uh, on the American shoreline of a water-dependent business use, join the National Working Waterfronts Network with Nicole Fagan. They have a great program of representing the point of view and the interest of the working waterfronts community. So. Uh, Nicole, thank you again for introducing us to Margaret Pilaro and Bob Rialt. And we look forward to diving into that interview, Tyler. Let's hear it. Well, I'd like to welcome now to the American Shoreline Podcast uh, two very important folks who are up close and personal with the issues of working waterfronts and aquaculture. We are pleased to have on the American Shoreline Podcast Bob Rowe, who is the executive director of the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association. And out on the West Coast, Margaret Pillara, who is the executive director of the West Coast Shellfish Growers Association. Uh, thank you guys for taking time out of your busy schedules and joining us on the American Shoreline podcast.
1: My pleasure. Well, uh, I think the place to begin, Margaret, I'll start with you, is to tell me a little bit about... Uh, your organization out on the representing the shellfish growers on the Pacific Coast. Tell us about that industry and the members that you represent.
3: Sure, I'd love to. Um, so the organization started over a hundred years ago when uh, oyster gr- oyster growers in particularly Washington State started realizing that they needed to organize in order to. Um, deal with issues such as water pollution and and, um, access to tidelands and to to landing their shellfish that individually they couldn't uh, make much headway. And so they needed to organize. And so they started the Olympia Oyster uh, Growers Association um, back in about 1930. And uh, the uh, organization started to, to grow. It became more of the Pacific Coast. Oyster Growers Association, allowing states of Washington, uh, Alaska, California, and Oregon in, and then eventually evolved into the Pacific Coast Shellfish Growers Association. Now, the history of shellfish here on the West Coast is is quite uh, interesting. There's a native oyster called the Olympia oyster that's about the size of a half dollar, and it's quite um, flavorful and has a lot of copper flavor to it, and they believe that, uh, and we we have evidence that, first of all, uh, these were eaten three to 4,000 years ago because we have piles of shellfish or wow. piles of oyster shells uh, that exist in parts of our coastal areas on the West Coast. Um, but the, this oyster actually also fueled the California gold rush. And oysters were consumed uh, quite a bit in, in sort of the San Francisco area, and they were brought down from Oregon, and then eventually brought down by sail ship from Willapa Bay, which is an area off of our uh, the west coast of Washington State. And so a lot of the oysters went down to San Francisco and were consumed and then depleted. And so growers started to say, well, we sh- we can start really working the tidelands ourselves and-, and grow them. And so the state of Washington jumped on and said, we're going to dedicate some of these tidelands just for the growing of shellfish so we have this a tremendous resource long into the future. So Washington is one of the only states that actually has private tidelands, and some of them are dedicated for shellfish cultivation. So as the industry continued to grow in all of our West Coast states, um, we uh, have seen many other changes in the industry, both going from uh, different growing methods and expanding beyond oysters to include clams, mussels and duck, which is a giant burrowing clam. Um, And uh, our growers represent everywhere from the very largest companies to the very smallest, where there's maybe two or three employees. Most of our members are small, um, uh, and many of our members represent the third or fourth generation of shellfish-growing family. So they take a lot of pride in um, continuing to uh, stay Uh, environmentally aware and and sustainable practices but also in the idea that this is a business that oftentimes their family has built up over generations before them
1: wow wow it is fascinating it's a fascinating history uh and i to 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 add on to that i'm curious to, to know your personal background how did you come to represent this community of people
3: Uh, In sort of an interesting kind of way, my background is I was uh, I I grew up on the north in the northeast part of the country and went to school in Rhode Island and was working for a um, a municipal government there in the city of Warwick doing some shellfish restoration while I was finishing up my master's, which is in marine affairs from University of Rhode Island Um, and then sort of drove out west to say, hey, let's see what's out there and landed a job. With the State Department of Natural Resources, doing some environmental planning work, um, again, mostly in aquatic resources, and then sort of fell into this really kind of weird um, program of of working mostly with uh, stakeholder engagement and and public involvement. And that took me from the world of aquatics all the way to forest land management and wildfire uh, prevention and, and and the whole breadth of what the Department of Natural Resources covers in, in the state of Washington. And at a certain point, I lifted my head up and said, you know what, I, I went into this business because I wanted to be working in marine issues and marine policy and coastal zone management. And I'm not doing that anymore. I'm working more in upland ways. And so I uh, was lucky enough to see an opening for this position uh, with the Pacific Coast Shellfish Growers Association, and they, um, you know, they hired me. And it was, it was, uh, wasn't sure how it was going to really work out, but it's been fabulous, and uh, it, it's been fun uh, marrying all of the different aspects of my career and my experiences into this into this job.
0: It's at. It, it's got to be helpful to have that background in uh, the regulatory universe uh, along along the shoreline and in the uplands because uh, environmental policy is a complex a complex thing. And you've got that background. And now with uh, with the association, uh, Bob Rowe out in the East Coast. Where are we? T- where are you today?
4: So I'm sitting in uh, my office in Rhode Island, uh, and I. I often say that we're the weak sister of the PCSGA. The ECSGA is a much younger organization, and um, we, we came along uh, about 16 or 17 years ago. Uh, we don't have quite the history or the budget of our West Coast compatriots, but uh, nonetheless, our industries are similar in size. Um, I came at this from a totally different uh, roundabout way. I was... I started my oyster farming experience while I was working on my PhD at, at URI. Uh, started as a hatchery in 1986 and then uh, turned to growing oysters because it turns out that hatcheries don't really make much money. Um, and looked and saw this wonderful organization they had on the West Coast and how much they were able to achieve and, uh, and said, we need that. And so uh, eventually, through several years of pushing my compatriots at meetings, we we established the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association. And for about a decade, I was the president. And then uh, it was getting old and tired and uh, worn out. And uh, it was time for me to get off the water. So I took sold my farm and became the executive director about 13 years ago. Um, and so I'm the biologist. Uh, and I come at it from a very different perspective. Uh, Way, but I, you know, we've got a very similar industry in terms of size and value, uh, with a different kind of oyster, different species of oyster. Um, we grow about uh, 160, 170 million dollars worth of clams and oysters uh, on the East Coast, and it's spread from Maine to Florida. And we've just created a Gulf Coast chapter to, to try and help those guys along because their their association sort of fell by the wayside when they're patron saint passed away a few years ago but uh, we uh, we've got about 1200 farms by and large small farms I used to be able to say I could count the farms with um, more than 10 employees without taking my shoes off but it's you know <laughs> it, it's we've had some consolidation and certainly industry growth has been quite strong in the last few years um, and so it's it, we have a number of larger firms now than we used to but when I did the poll 80% of my members had less than five employees. So that sort of gives you an idea. They're mostly wow. mom and pops, very small firms, uh, really dedicated uh, coastal stewards who are, who came at this mostly from an environmental background and vast, large number of uh, over-educated oyster farmers like me with PhDs and people who came at this from the Jacques Cousteau era you know, wanting to, to grow food. And, um, uh, it's, it's really a great group of people to represent, I always say I have the, the best job in the world because the people I work for are just such uh, earthy people, and we are very proud to have one of the most sustainable protein products on the planet. We don't need any drugs or chemicals, antibiotic, antibiotics or, or feed. Uh, we just uh, let Mother Nature feed our crop and try and keep the crabs from eating them all.
0: Right base of the food chain, food chain kind of product. Uh, both of you have Rhode Island roots, so it's my understanding you guys are, uh, are friends and acquaintances and colleagues in this business. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to know each other and uh, your working relationship as executive directors of these associations. Uh, Nicole, what? how did you and Bob uh, learn about each other?
4: Go ahead, Margaret.
3: Well, (laughs) it was interesting. I sort of showed up at my office and uh, they said, okay, here's the job. Go ahead and do it. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) And uh, they said, you know, there's this guy on the East Coast uh, named Bob and you might want to check in with him to see how he does things. And uh, I called him and I noticed right away the 401 phone number and I said, this is going to be easy. And so I said, hey, listen. this is who I am and this is what I'm about to do. And I went to URI and so we should get along fine. And uh, I think that's sort of how it's been working ever since, you know, Bob has a very uh, fabulous uh, biological experience and farmed experience. So he, he knows things about the interworking of, of, uh, what the growers are doing in, in a way that I don't have. Um, but I have more of the policy piece. And so what I love about the relationship that we have is that we we complement each other really well. Um, and I'll often call Bob and say, hey, look, I don't understand what's going on with this. Help help me understand this. And he will. And he'll call and say, look, I think I may have uh, tracked paint through the house with by pissing somebody off And what do I do now And then I usually step in and say Okay I'll call and fix it So it's been working really great And uh, uh, I know when my colleagues See me with Bob They think uh, Someday w- we're going to lose her back To to uh, the northeast Because there's just something That happens when Rhode Islanders Get together <laughs>
4: <laughs>
0: That's great well, Bob, I think that what, I, what's, what I'm interested in and in the fact that y'all know each other well, share uh, an interest in a professional commitment to aquaculture and to shellfish growing on the American shoreline is it makes me think immediately of hmm, what are the common issues between the East Coast and the West Coast in terms of the challenges of the industry uh, that you represent? Uh, can we do a little compare and contrast? Can we do a little East Coast, West Coast? What's different and what's the same about what you guys are trying to accomplish?
4: Sure. So, um, you know, we, we do, we work very well together. We're on the phone together all the time. We are talking to DC all the time. A huge part of our job is is trying to work with the regulatory agencies and try and make sure they don't put us all out of business. Um, So we're, we're, we're tight, and we have to be because we, we share all of these regulatory challenges. But, um, you know, on the East Coast, we've got the American oyster, which is a, a native that's been, been here, you know, since the dawn of time, a 300-million-year-old species. We've got the hard clam. We've got a little bit of muscle culture going on. Um, and our, our challenges are that the, the American oyster has got about six different parasites that can cause mass mortalities if we don't uh, try and avoid them, or you know, treat our animals well and, and make sure the disease doesn't get in there. Our, it's a, such a primitive organism; uh, we can't really use drugs or, or uh, antibiotics, or, or there's you can't give them give them a uh, immunization shot. There's no immune system to stimulate really. So the only tool in the box is. I is bet selection. your
0: customers are glad about that though.
4: Well, absolutely, and it makes me very proud that we don't use any of those chemicals. But, you know, certainly I would love to be able to give you, give them an immunization shot. There's nothing wrong with that, uh, and there's no no, uh, no harm in that. But it's just it just doesn't work that way. So we, we have had some success in breeding our way out of a few um, problems. There's a, a parasite on the East Coast called MSX that virtually wiped out the entire Uh, mid-Atlantic population of oysters. Um, And it was just about 25 years ago that through selective breeding, we were able to go from uh, crops that would have 80% mortality to now having 80% survival. And you could actually make money growing oysters in the Chesapeake again. Um, And that was huge. So it's rejuvenating the the oyster industry in the Chesapeake Bay, which was historically one of the largest, uh, you know, oyster populations on the East coast. So, um, uh, you know, then we've got other challenges. We got hurricanes here that they don't have on the West coast very often. So um, that ends up being a a game changer every couple of years, um, wiping out farms. Um, But on the West coast, they've got a a different array of species, uh, a broader array of species. I'll let Margaret take it over from here. Uh, yeah, Margaret. Yeah,
0: go ahead. Tell us uh, <laughs> what what are the issues that you confront in, as as an organization out on the West Coast?
3: Sure, and, and I'll add to some of the ones that we have in common. So we we do grow different species out here. Um, uh, some of our growers do grow the American oyster, um, not as well as they do on the on the West Coast, but we have the Olympia <laughs> oyster, which is our native. Um, as well as we have a Pacific oyster. And the Pacific oyster uh, actually started coming in um, in the 1920s or so. We realized that um, the native oyster wasn't uh, performing quite as well to meet the market demand. uh, And there were some challenges with uh, how it was reproducing on its own in the environment. So in the 1920s, we brought over a Pacific oyster. Which is now naturalized and and is found pretty much everywhere on the west coast. Um, we also grow a Kumamoto oyster, uh, which is has a unique uh, flavor and profile from the Pacific. Uh, we have hard clams, but they're different than the hard clams that they grow on the on the east coast. And we have a giant burrowing clam, which I refer- referenced before, is the gooey Duck, um, and that's a native clam um, that grows to about two and a half pounds and is quite popular in the Asian market. Um, and we do mussels as well. Um, so we have all of those, uh, we don't have hurricanes, um, but, uh, we've been challenged, uh, similar with, with wherever you're growing shellfish, you know, it's in a natural environment and that environment changes and it responds to things that are happening near it, whether it's uh, runoff or, um, uh, changes of land use shading. uh, uh we, we've been hit quite badly with, um, Ocean acidification, uh, an issue also on the East Coast, but kind of coming from different sources. Ours is coming from really old water that has been holding um, uh, our our impacts from um, uh, carbon fuels uh, in the in the water itself, and now we're seeing that come up and change the chemistry of of the water that our hatcheries are using and and our growers depend on. So so we have some similarities there. We also have diseases that we're concerned about. We have harmful algal blooms that are becoming a bit more prevalent, um, probably because the environment is changing. Um, One of the things that we have in common is we're both trying to understand the genetics of oysters better. And the genetics of shellfish and trying to see are there things in the ge- in the genetic makeup of the animals that will help us respond better, make them more resilient to some of these changing conditions. Uh, we have similarities in conflicts of the working waterfront. Uh, where are these shellfish farms and how are they interacting with their neighbors, both in good ways and in bad ways? Uh, what uses are taking uh, priority on our coastal areas over others you know, our shellfish farming community employs um, hundreds of of people in a, in a community and uh, is that a more important use or is that a use that's that is as given value over uh, residential housing um, and so we share in those uh, some commonality between the east and the west coast Um and making sure that people understand how shellfish are farmed and the the ways in which it's a valuable, wonderful way to produce protein from our marine environment, rather than using uh, gobs of of water and and uh, land and other resource extraction in order to produce some other proteins that we know of. So we have some similarities there in trying to get that message
1: out. Mm. Um, if I could jump in here, uh, Peter, I, it sounded like you were getting ready to fire off another question, but I just, I just have to ask if Margaret, would you mind sizing up, uh, the, the overall, uh, size of the industry? What is it worth? Like how many tons of, uh, shellfish are, uh, your members producing every year?
3: We, oh, I don't. I don't think I have the number of tons that we're producing every year. I don't have that, and oh, that has been a really difficult number for us to get. The numbers that we have um, are come with lots of qualifiers because uh, it, it's been hard to get um, get this nailed down. But we are basically uh, um, up and before this year we've been a bit over 300 million dollars uh, of value of uh, for the west coast producers is the number that we sort of land on
1: that's a big number
3: yes that's a big, a big that's
1: m- a big number compared to say the lobster fishery peter which we talk about all the time which i believe uh, if memory serves we're talking what was it 300 and, 380 350 350 $500
0: dollars depending on the you know of the season. but yeah, $300 million dollar uh, value, uh, Margaret, that's a pretty powerful economic sector on the American shoreline.
3: It, it is and and it hasn't always been that big. you know, we've seen a couple of things happen. About ten years ago, we started uh, growing gooey duck and that's a very high value product because it's very popular and well sought after in the asian market so that helped boost that number quite a bit and also we've seen a shift from what was a shucked market where you would buy your oysters already shucked and maybe fry them or put them in stew now it's moved to a half shell market which you know you're buying them individually they're coming to your your um your plate uh, live. And so there's, there's a lot of, of, of ways to boost the economics there because you, you have to, um, you know, you're requiring jobs to get that live product there and you're getting more for it. So these are somewhat new. And both of these uh, are reasons why this current situation with the COVID um, uh a pandemic are particularly devastating because we've we've benefited from having really high value products out there in the markets and those are the products that are going to take longer to come back
4: and if I could just jump in I mean the the everybody loves to go to a restaurant and eat oysters because you don't have to open them it turns out mm-hmm. that Americans most Americans don't know how to open an oyster. And so when you lose your restaurant. I'll admit it. (laughs) I
0: think I'm going to stab myself in the hand every time I think, you know, I see these guys do it with just an instant swipe of their hand. And I think uh, that's a flick of the wrist. Yes.
4: So we are producing video after video, showing people how to chuck (laughs) safely without harm and injury. You can do this. I produced one just the other day doing it blindfolded. So if I can chuck blindfolded, you can go online and watch a video, get yourself a proper oyster knife, and it's your job to, to really step up and learn how because we need every <laughs> man uh, on the right, okay. <laughs> to go out and buy some oysters right now because we watched our, our markets just evaporate overnight. I mean, literally, uh, one of my bigger dealers took two tractor trailer loads of oysters to the dump, which oh, makes me shed a tear. But it was cheaper than trying to return them to all the growers that he bought them from, where they could return them to the water. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's really been uh, somebody threw a switch, and there's a lot of pain now. Um, these hardworking men and women, uh, growers in my industry, have just watched their revenues disappear overnight, and um, it's not looking like it's going to snap back in the near future. So wow. we're we're working really hard trying to teach people that they can shuck at home. We can teach you how to roast them on the grill. We can teach you how to make Rockefeller, how to shuck safely. And we're really counting on anybody who's ever gone to a restaurant and ordered a dozen to step up and buy a box online because we got to keep these farms in business. Um, it would be a real shame to see all these hardworking men and women have to go paint houses and drive buses.
0: Right. Well, it's why we wanted uh, to have you guys on on the podcast and to really get to this is the crux of the issue today is that. And, and Margaret, you, you educated me in the in the lead up to the show that 90 percent of the oysters consumed or shellfish typically are are bought through restaurants. And of course, the restaurant industry is closed down in America, virtually everywhere. And that is the avenue. Uh, for your uh, product and for the people who produce it. Um, and uh, $300 million is a lot of money. And I assume, Bob, the values are comparable out on the East Coast. Uh, yeah, suffice we've, it. Yeah, yeah, we've got about
4: $170 million on the East Coast. And the, the really cool thing about this industry is that oyster production on the East Coast has doubled in just the past five years. I don't know what else has doubled in the past five years except for maybe the the national debt, but, um, we were really, um, riding high and expecting it to double again in the next five years. And somebody just pulled the rug out from under us.
0: All right. Let's talk a little bit about, I'd like to get y'all's thoughts on, on what can be done from the consumer side here. You mentioned, uh, perhaps ordering online. Can you tell us, um, and i I love oysters. I you know Chrysostria, What is it? Chrysostria virginica. You know. So I, I was a marine biology major in the Galveston Bay system, which is a pretty good oyster bay. Love these things. Uh, can I get my hands on some great Northwest oysters or Northeast oysters uh, on through the internet these days?
4: And even Gulf Coast oysters. The industry. Uh, the the intensive culture. Of oysters is taking off on the Gulf Coast uh, as we speak, and they are sort of nascent, uh, getting into it, getting uh, sort of late to the party, but they really embraced it and were just a bunch of firms who were really producing top quality, uh, intensive cultured, hatchery reared oysters uh, for the for the raw, yuppie raw bar market as I call it, and uh, a lot of these firms are you know two three years in. Um, and just suddenly faced with nothing other than online sales. And, yeah, there are a number of, uh, I encourage you to Google, you know, but there's uh, a woman who does In a Half Shell blog and teaches people how to shuck Julie Q. She's got a very active online following, and and, um, she's got a number of farms that are listed on on her uh, website. Uh, The Pacific Coast growers have done a a fine job of uh, setting up a website to handle some of their uh, growers who are able to ship um, and send out stuff via FedEx and UPS. We're trying to replicate uh, the East Coast Shellfish Growers site, but we're not quite there yet. But uh, there are dozens and dozens of growers who are trying to sell their product online now. We've got um, oyster trails set up in almost every state and they are trying to uh, educate consumers about where they can go in their state to either buy them at a farmer's market or get a, uh, a tour of an oyster farm, but but also, you know, get product locally, either at the farmer's market or now there's a lot of people that are doing home delivery. Um, but for the most part, you know, we're, we're counting on uh, FedEx and UPS to deliver boxes of say 50 to the homeowners and thankfully the These uh, shellfish products have a a pretty long shelf life, so you don't have to eat them all in the first week. Uh, The American oyster uh, will stay alive in your refrigerator literally for months. The Pacific Coast oyster is a little bit, um, I would say a little more tender and (laughs) wants to be eaten within a week or so. But uh, you can, yeah, keeping them alive. We actually, a number of growers in New England bury their oysters for three months of the winter so they don't lose them to the ice and they get better survival uh, in, in 50 degrees in a pit in the ground than they do uh, out in the water. So this is a tough animal.
0: Wow. That's my, that's the fun fact of the day for me that you, I had no idea you could put these oysters in your refrigerator and they will be alive and fresh for weeks. That's incredible.
4: Yeah, so the American oyster literally, uh, especially in the winter when it's harvested and it's totally dormant, it, it literally will survive for months in your refrigerator. Uh, put, a, put it in a bowl with a wet rag over the top. It's alive. It needs to open up and breathe, so don't put it in a plastic bag. Uh, but it, it will, um, it, as long as it's alive, it stops any decomposition. It's not like that you know, tray of ground beef in the back turning sort of gray. <laughs> uh, there's no. I, I have there. one of those. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> um The oyster is alive and maintaining itself, and it's quite healthy as long as it's kept cool. Uh, nothing to worry about there.
1: Can I ask a question? Um, I'm curious to know. You mentioned that over the past five years, the number of farms—I believe you said farms—had doubled. And what what's driving that? What's driving this dramatic? expansion in shellfish growing?
4: So, you know, it's it's hard to say it's the chicken or the egg. But when I started way back when, uh, I'm one of the dinosaurs of this industry. We, we had just figured out how to spawn in the hatchery in the late 50s. And we were painting chicken wire to get two years out of it to try and keep crabs from eating our entire crop. Um, And then in the late 80s, we invented plastics. um, And that allowed us to have vinyl coated wire and plastic mesh bags and plastic netting and things like that. And it really revolutionized the industry um, and allowed us to grow oysters from a hatchery and um, allowed us to produce a uniform product that was available year round. And I remember going to the raw bar, the raw bar that we had in Providence. And they were like, what? You can do this year round? You can give me this wonderful uniform product year round? And they were so excited because up until that point, all they really had was the wild harvest. And the the wild harvest was not really dependable. Mother Nature can be rather fickle as to whether she gives you a good set of oysters. And so, and the wild harvest would go until the harvesters, depleted what was out there so they'd have fresh oysters in their raw bar for a few months of the year and they were sort of squirrely looking and different shapes and different sizes and and then they would be out of them for eight months of the year well you can't really have a raw bar and not have any raw oysters so once we had growers who were able to deliver online then you saw this just rapid proliferation of oyster bars and now if you Google uh, or go on Zagat's now, uh, Google bought Zagat's, you can search on raw bars and get over 1,000 hits in Manhattan, uh, wow. over 1,000 raw bars in D.C. and Baltimore. And so we've seen this doubling of oyster production in the last five years. And over that same period, the prices inched up because restaurants see this as a, a draw if you can serve fresh uh, oysters, even if you're going to lose a little bit of money they'll they'll see it as a loss leader, get you in the door to buy booze and they'll make money on the booze. So uh, everybody wants to be selling raw oysters now and it's a great trend that we were really riding high on uh, because people like to go to the restaurants and put a smile on their face. And by making you hungry?
0: <laughs> you are making me hungry and my my son worked at a, at a raw bar here it was it and you were right there there was a beautiful bar uh where you could have a great cocktail uh and right next to it just at the end was a really nice oyster bar you could sit down and have blue point oysters they had a great menu they're from all over the coast live fresh boy they were so great and a really nice cocktail uh it's a good it's a good gig i love it um
4: and we're really gonna- exploiting. We're really, uh, you know, trying to share the fact that every oyster is different. So even an oyster grown in the same pond where I was growing, I can detect a slight flavor difference between mine and the guy who's growing next to me. And we're we're selling it like fine wines, pairing it with different booze and different beverages, and trying to get everyone to understand the the subtle differences in the flavor like you would between two different wines. And so we're riding that all the way to the bank.
0: I love that. I wanted to, I just want to touch on uh, uh, one quick topic, Margaret, you mentioned about acidification. And uh, I want to be educated a little more on this. And I I think our listeners uh, may have heard this question here or there. Um, The reading I have done convinces me that ocean acidification is, is a real thing. It is especially significant uh, for folks who are involved in shellfish or crabs or lobsters, other animals that have carbonate-based shells. Um, do if you could or Bob could both of you educate our audience a little bit about what o- ocean acidification is and why it is a threat to the or a concern to the industry you guys represent.
3: Uh, well, let me, let me, uh, give a little bit of history as to how we started realizing what was going on. And then, and then Bob, you can, you can do more of the real science behind it. But back about, uh, 11 years ago now, um, our main hatcheries, because again, the demand was such as Bob talked about. We, we turned to hatcheries to start the, um, larval process so we can get seed, um, they started realizing, or they experienced tremendous mortality. We're talking about like eighty percent of what they were, what they were trying to produce, completely uh, died. Out of two of our three big hatcheries on the west coast, and 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 it was sheer panic. Right, there is no way we were going to overcome this, and unless we understood what was going on. And so, um, we quickly sort of thought, is it a disease? Is it you know what could it be? And ran through the whole rigmarole, and then realized that there was a change in the acidity of the water that was being brought into the hatchery and uh, all sorts of modeling and and so on made us realize you know we were pulling water uh during upwelling events or when winds were coming from a certain direction uh water was coming up and it was it was more acidic and and that was making it difficult for the animals to create what it needed to for its shell and then ultimately what it needed to in order to live because it was putting so much energy into, into creating a, um, a microscopic shell and using that calcium. And so we, we realized that and we've, we've responded to it by being able to install monitoring and being able to alter the water um, if first of all, not picking up water that is through one of these acidic events and then uh, being able to treat it, but but bringing that information through a whole host of of great uh, monitoring tools around the nation through the uh, Integrated Ocean Observing System, IOOS, which is a a NOAA program that um, helps growers understand what is the conditions of the water, not just the temperature and salinity, but also the uh, aragonite saturation, which helps us understand how acidic they are. And uh, that information has been helpful through the entire growing season, because if the animal can't grow its shell initially from the hatchery, it it, it compromises its ability to, to grow the rest of its life. And so um, that's been really helpful. And, and, and on the West Coast, we know that it's sort of from this older water that's been sitting Um, absorbing the extra carbon in our atmosphere and on the east coast i think it's it's sort of manifested in a bit different way but the but the approach to bringing data into where shellfish farmers need it and can use it on a daily basis has has been similar
4: so yeah we you know so this is the other climate change piece that most people are unaware of um, and it's totally related to the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, when we make CO2, whether from a fossil fuel burning or, or any other source, one third of it immediately dissolves. It's tremendously soluble. It dissolves right into the ocean. And when CO2 goes into seawater, it forms a, a mild acid, carbonic acid. So it drops the pH very slightly, but measurably. And... Um, over the years, as, as we've seen the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere skyrocketing, it has had an impact. And, you know, when I was in in graduate school, they taught us that um, the, the pH of the ocean would never change. It was just something that you, you just don't have to worry about. Well, we've actually dropped the pH of the ocean by 0.2 units, almost 0.3 units, which doesn't sound like very much, but it's the log scale. It, what it really means is that there's about 60% more hydrogen ions, which is how you measure uh, acidity in the water now than there was. And um, we have, you know, three different issues when it comes to acidity in our our coastal waters. One is um, this man-made problem, which we are referring to as ocean acidification, which is caused by the CO2 levels in the atmosphere. The other is um, upwelling of deep water. And uh, by deep water, in the middle of the ocean, there's this zone below where the light goes. So there's no plants and basically a rain of dying organic matter. uh, And the organic matter gets eaten by bacteria and the bacteria suck up all the oxygen and they put out CO2. So this deep water is very rich in nitrate and CO2 and has no oxygen in it. And periodically, if there's an offshore wind, the only way it carries away the the, uh, coastal waters, and that water is replaced by deep water. So you get this upwelling event of this very acidic, caustic, old, hasn't seen the the surface of the uh, ocean in, in millions of years or at least several hundreds or thousands of years. And when it upwells, it is very acidic and very caustic to anything with a shell, whether it's coral or shellfish. And then the third uh, thing that we have, and we see this primarily on the East Coast in our estuaries, and that's eutrophication-induced acidification. So when you've got too much nitrogen flowing into your estuaries, it causes a bloom, of phytoplankton, which is good because phytoplankton is food for our oysters. But when you get too much phytoplankton and and those blooms die, again, the bacteria consume the dying phytoplankton and they will suck all the oxygen out. So we get low oxygen events and you'll see occasional fish kills. But you also see at night that they're pumping out tremendous amounts of CO2 And the pH at night in our estuaries can drop precipitously. So we have these three uh, different impacts that are all leading to the same thing. And because our animals need to form a shell, carbonate, they need to do so. It's always harder to do so in an acidic environment. So it's particularly the larvae, which are, you know, they're dust specks swimming around, literally the size of a dust speck. You can almost see it with the naked eye You get the light just right, and they're swimming around in these lazy circles for about three weeks, or two to three weeks, and trying to form a shell and grow so they can settle down. Um, And we see these pictures under scanning electron microscopes of these awful pitted, dwarfed, you know, decaying, shelled little poor little larvae that can't grow. And um, we're hoping it's not a harbinger of things to come, but that. uh, we do know that 300 million years ago, there was a lot more carbon in the water and we still had shellfish. So hopefully we will be able to adapt the challenge is This is happening on a scale of 50 to 100 years and evolution happens on a scale of thousands and millions of years. So we're not sanguine that, that this is not going to be a challenge, but I, I'm still not clear whether this is uh, the end of shellfish in 200 years or simply a challenge like all the other challenges that shellfish have overcome. We, uh, as a scientific community, are still trying to predict how this how this rolls out. We know that we can fix it in the hatchery by buffering the water, which gives me great, great uh, confidence that we'll, we'll weather this at least uh, for the, the next 50 years or so. Beyond that, um, I'm, I'm less confident.
0: Wow, that's ominous as as a topic. And when you say the hatchery, I just want to clarify for me, but also for our listeners out there, you're not growing the oysters to commercial scale in these hatcheries. It's to get the spats or to get them to a certain point that can dent. Is that right? Uh, the, the hatchery is just the starter stage of these critters that you're trying to.
4: Yep, produce? we get the we get the mothers and fathers together, and each. Uh, Each adult oyster will pump out about, you know, 10 to 30 million uh, eggs and sperm and we put them together and about three weeks later they, they settle down and we offer them a tiny little piece of shell for them to cement themselves to. They can't tell. They think it's as big as a planet. And, um, and then we grow them up. And typically the hatchery (laughs) will grow them up to a couple of millimeters and then we'll move them out to a nursery. Uh, The nursery phase is, uh, you know, Again, it has its own challenges. And then once we get them up to, say, dime size, we'll be moving them out to the farms for a final grow out.
0: Got it. And that's and that's why you're saying that in the near term, because you can buffer the water within the starter phase to get them to dime size, move them into the ocean, they then can tolerate this, this pH range a little bit better. Um, it seems maybe we can manage this uh, and keep this uh, production and this animal available. Uh, but if the overall conditions, uh, boy, it's, that concerns me. And when I when I learned more about this, I, I, I was Im- alarmed a little bit about acidification and the fact that we can actually change the pH of the ocean so slightly, but these things are the canary in the coal mines of the ocean. They are very sensitive at this early stage of their existence to to acidification and pH. And if the, it's off a little bit, you don't get the reproduction in the natural system, right? That sounds pretty damn uh, frightening as a prospect.
4: It's ominous, especially for the wild populations. As I say, I, I'm reasonably confident that our hatcheries are going to be able to you know, continue to supply us with seed at least for the next 50 or 100 years. Um, we'll be able to grow shellfish. We do know that you know, when they get a significant upwelling event on the West Coast, we don't have these upwellings on on the East Coast? Um, we have our, our eutrophication challenges, but not the upwelling challenges. When they get these significant upwelling events, uh, even the adults will uh, slow down their growth, and it's a it's a significant challenge. It, everything, it's harder to roll that rock up the hill and make the the calcium carbonate. And you know, while there are climate change skeptics out there who may think that the the models for global warming are all you know, hocus pocus. There's no models here. This is very simple chemistry. I, I demonstrated this to uh, Senator Whitehouse a little while back, put a pH meter in a a glass of seawater and blew through an air stone. And within a couple breaths, I was able to drop the pH in just from the CO2 in my lungs by, by several units. Um, and it, it makes a great demonstration to explain exactly how simple this this relationship is between CO2 in the atmosphere and the pH in the in the ocean.
1: Friend of the pod, Senator Whitehouse, uh, yeah. former guest on the American Shoreline podcast. Oh. Um, well, this was this has been fascinating. I I, I want to talk a little bit about um, how shellfish aquaculture fits into uh climate change adaptivity sustainability and kind of the future of the of the food supply um you know i I do understand that it's expanding and um i also understand that oysters uh and mussels and filter feeders can be good things to have uh in in the environment um I'm not sure if there's any negative impacts, but I'd like to ask, I'll kick it to Margaret to start. Um, how how would you answer that question? How does shellfish aquaculture fit into our future?
3: Well, um, you, it's been said a couple of times, and I think I, I need to just point out that, um, you know, in terms of number of farms and the expansion of aquaculture on the West Coast, I don't know as if that's necessarily uh, true. I think that that there certainly is a, a increase in production, but there's been lots of um, uh, anti-shellfish uh, or anti-aquaculture uh, um, movements that have sort of slowed the ability to actually grow the industry, and it's being seen through lawsuits and challenges to permits or to uh, increasing um, permitting requirements that make it difficult to open new farms, particularly for someone who hasn't uh, had a farm before, you know, requires a lot of capital, legal expenses and so on in order to actually achieve a new farm. Um, And that's actually pretty ironic, given how when we look to our future and we look at the amount of food we're going to need as a population um, and we look at the amount of resources necessary in producing a pound of pork or a pound of chicken or beef, um, and, uh, and and we compare that with the amount of resources uh, required to uh, produce protein from the ocean, it's remarkable, the difference is astounding. And And looking at how much food we need, if you're looking at needing tens of pounds of input or tens of pounds, you know, uh, in order to get a pound of of meat product, beef or pork, um, versus a pound of of uh, input. So that's you know feed or or uh, water or resources to to produce it. A pound in produces a pound out of. Of fish. And when you talk about shellfish, as Bob has mentioned before, we're not feeding the shellfish. They're eating what's already in the water. We're not fertilizing the shellfish. They're they're growing because they're happy where they are. So a pound for a pound on a, a fin fish um, is even less for shellfish. So when you look into the future and you say, How are we going to feed ourselves? We are foolish if we're not thinking. Uh, a lot of what we need is going to come from uh, the marine environment. And to set up ourselves to be ready for that is uh, is as unwise because uh, we won't have, we won't be able to sustain ourselves if our protein is all coming from land-based sources. And uh, shellfish is an excellent way to respond to the stresses that we have on our planet from the use of carbon and 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 these other things that we're facing so um i want the future to be really robust and positive um and we're at this place right now both with um costs and expense in actually creating farming opportunities for people and then certainly in current day with the pandemic that we that we're all facing of and not allowing me to be very positive about how it's all going to move forward. And I certainly don't want to give that negative Nelly here on, on this po- podcast, but it's, it's an issue that we need to address as, as, as humans on this planet.
4: Yeah, if I could just follow up on that. We've done some calculations that if we could just keep, get people to replace 10% of their beef consumption in America with, with shellfish, and I'm probably going to get the actual number wrong. It would be the equivalent of pulling, I think it was, 100 million cars off the road, which is uh, just dramatic. And they, they do that because of the the environmental costs of producing beef versus uh, the inputs that are just not necessary to produce the equivalent amount of shellfish. Now, when you actually do the math, I think it's something like 5,000 oysters per capita. It's probably not very practical. I, I would do my part, but I don't know if we could get everybody else to. Um, the, the environmental benefits associated with shellfish farming are, are so numerous that, that I, I don't know where to start, but, but the two that I'm most proud of are that we, we've reduced the amount of excess nitrogen in our coastal waters, which has tremendous impacts in terms of eutrophication, water quality, uh, and, and hypoxic events. So when you have a, a very large, robust population of shellfish, it, it takes down the, the blooms and grazes them down and, and balances the, the ecosystem, and you get less swings in, in uh, oxygen levels at night. Uh, you also see that oyster aquaculture, as well as natural oyster reefs, provide an excellent habitat for juvenile fish. This was something that I discovered. I had no idea that when I put all my oyster cages in that I would suddenly have the best diving in Rhode Island on my little oyster farm because it was a giant artificial reef and all these little nooks and crannies were filled with little tiny fish. And guess what? There's all these big fish lurking around who want to eat the little fish. So when I wanted to take my kids out fishing, I took them to the lease because I knew we were going to catch fish. I'm not really a very good fisherman. So uh, the habitat value, the nitrogen removal, the fact that it's just such a sustainable product, uh, there's benefits in terms of benthic stabilization and Uh, It's on and on and on. It just gives me uh, a great, very, very proud feeling to know that, you know, while I'm producing food sustainably, I've also got these other ancillary benefits that I really didn't realize. And Margaret's absolutely correct that it is getting harder and harder and harder to permit new farms because we've moved from a primarily a a bottom culture uh, situation to we've devised new floating gear and the floating gear allows us to improve our survival dramatically we get better shell we get better meat quality and so everybody wants to use the floating gear instead of the bottom cage well guess what the floating gear is sort of in your face if you're you know a waterfront homeowner and you've got your opulent mini mansion on the waterfront you may not want to look at strings of floating cages and dirty muddy people who just don't wear enough lands end gear and we don't drive nice white yachts and we're out there making food though. And they love to eat it, but they don't want to see it in front of their house. And every hearing I've ever been to for every lease that's proposed, the opponents will stand up and say, Oh, I support aquaculture. I think it's the best thing since sliced bread, but this is the wrong spot in front of my house. So, um, this is the new normal. And, uh, It's a challenge, but I fully believe that we can be creative and find spots that we can put in farms that are not interfering with fishing, they're not interfering with navigation. And they actually have, you know, very sound, strong environmental benefits associated with our, our activities.
0: Well, it sounds like it's such a complex topic and the interplay of issues is, is really significant. It's why having, something like the East Coast uh, Shellfish Growers Association and the West Coast Group uh, in existence uh, to talk about these issues and to educate the the legislators and the regulators and the communities that are uh, undergoing this transition or gentrification threat that it presents to your members. And we're, we've got a few more minutes and I wanted to just throw out one more topic before we wrap up the show and give you guys a chance to also share your final thoughts. But you've mentioned leases, uh, Bob and Margaret, you mentioned the dedicated private tidelands approach to um, aquaculture for shellfish uh, can y'all talk a little educate our listeners a little bit about the nature of the rights to uh, conduct or uh, shellfish aquaculture operations from a I don't want to say land use, it's a submerged lands or open water rights issue. Can you talk about that, you guys? Uh, Margaret, can you explain what goes on in the in on the West Coast?
3: Well, as I mentioned before, uh, Washington is, is uh, sort of uh, an anomaly in terms of its commitment to allowing um, residents to actually own tide lands. Most of the submerged lands are managed by the State Department of Natural Resources, and, and there are leases and uses that can happen on those. And the lands that are not in private ownership, the tide lands, that's the, the area that gets exposed during low tide, uh, the lands of of Thai lands that are not um, privately held are also managed by the Department of Natural Resources and leased out for for variety of uses, um, uh, including shellfish uh, culture, um, and uh, so you know you uh, you have the right to uh, to use those lands as the private owner in in some way that you that you want Um, some of those lands that were in private ownership came because they were used in logging and logging companies wanted to be able to bring their logs down to the water and float them away and so that's sort of how they were used before and now some of those lands are dedicated just for for shellfish which is which is great um but that doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want however you want to do it there is a pretty rigorous permitting structure and system in place. Um, Shellfish growers have to get permits locally through their county. They have to get uh, permits through the state and they have to get federal permits. And each of those permits are supposed to be looking at particular elements of the operation and how those elements interact with other things around it. Um, And uh, so it's an it's a a very rigorous uh, process that you have to go through. You have to demonstrate that you're not going to affect anything, including the water quality or the character of the area and and so on, Uh, much like it is for other coastal permitting uh, issues. Um, And so even if you want to be able to grow shellfish in your private lands or lease those lands to somebody else to grow them, you do have to abide by the regulatory structure that's in place. Um, and uh, in some areas it's easier to do because I think the community or the people are less likely to oppose it. Um, and in some areas uh, it's it's more difficult to do. And uh, just like with other coastal uh, use conflicts that you see, that range can vary. Um, and uh, then and as Bob pointed out, there are some some users of the coastal environment, uh, coastal residents who who really don't want to have that be seen um, from their from their home, even if they don't own the, the lands right in front of them. I'm not sure so, if that really answered your question at all, but. Um,
4: yeah,
0: it, it
3: does. Not I, like-
0: I, I've assumed- yeah, keep
4: going. I know. Yeah. Sorry. If I could jump in for a second, I mean, uh, Washington State is, is an anomaly. We've, you know, the, the tidelands are typically managed by the states out to three miles, and they have jurisdiction. So we have a patchwork of, of leasing rules and requirements. I've got 14 different states on the East Coast, so it's quite a bit of different rules to, to track. But typically the states are required in their charter to manage those lands for the benefit of the sovereign, which means to all the people in the state, not just the people who are rich enough to buy that beautiful waterfront mansion. So, and we we view that that in many cases, the highest and best use is farming shellfish, because we can we can do it and not interfere with navigation, and we can do it and not take away the best fishing spots. But we can take marginal fishing grounds that aren't very productive, and turn them into some of the most productive uh, shell fishing producing areas on the planet. So it's it's really uh, we believe that we can do this in concert with other users, um, but there is a little bit of sacrifice. I'm not going to say that. We're beautiful, but you know I don't mind looking at a row of corn, a nice cornfield, uh, and I think that society will learn, like they did in Europe. I mean, you go to France and they've got, you know, oyster trestles right up in front of multi-million-dollar homes, and it's just part of their culture. And hopefully, it'll become part of our culture too, because we uh, we do need to feed the next two billion mouths on the planet, and we do have a wonderful sustainable product.
0: Well, and we all love it. I mean, that's got to be the frustration of this thing. You know, you take your trip down to the beach or the coast, anywhere on the American shoreline. You go to the local restaurant. What do you want to have? You want to have fresh, fresh seafood. You want to have some great oysters from the nearby bay. I mean, this is what we demand. And uh, people love shellfish clams. All of these varieties are very, very popular. And yet we don't love the people who produce it as much as we should. And I I really think you guys make a great case. We have to allow the room for this highly sustainable, environmentally sound seafood product uh, for our economic interest and the culture of our communities. It's just, it's gotta be a little bit baffling sometimes to think what the hell do we gotta do to make the case for this? Because it seems really straightforward to me.
4: If I could just like mention one more aspect of it, you know, and one of the things that has me really worried about this current COVID crisis is if we do have a a serious hiccup in production and a number of farms go out of business, which is what sort of keeps me up late at night, we may uh, lose more of our working waterfront uh, because there'll be more pressure to push out the working boats and replace them with nice white yachts, we already find that this is a challenge uh, for many of our growers. But if you can't land your product, you can't have a farm. And uh, we're we're seeing the gentrification of a lot of marinas, um, and some marinas are pushing us out for the higher paying customers. So it and you know there's certain boat ramps and launching areas that are paid for with Wallop bro funds and are expressly for recreational fishermen. And they're starting to say, well, we don't want you to land your, your products there. You're a commercial fish farmer. uh, So you can't use those, those landings. So there's whole towns in New England that you can't have a farm because you can't land commercial fish products.
0: Wow. Another aspect, Uh, final thoughts, Margaret on your part, comments.
3: Um, well, uh, I think that we are, because of the working waterfront, because that space is so so small and uh, highly sought after, we are seeing some interesting combinations of uses. Um, so we're starting to see how, in response to some of this ocean acidification piece, um, we're using what's called a flupsy, which is a floating upwelling system, um, where uh, very, very small uh, shellfish before it goes out onto the tides can be put into a system and and, and uh, food, water can be pushed through it so that this these critters can eat happily. And those are showing up in marinas because it's a great spot for uh, that, that kind of use to happen. And so there's some policy discussions there in terms of um, you know, can can these two uses coexist in a marina? Recreational boating and access to boating, and uh, uh, flupsies for aquaculture production. We're also seeing ports start talking about um, how do they increase their landings, and it's through aquaculture. We're seeing some offshore aquaculture operations in uh, Ventura, California, and San Diego has been really active in in trying to figure out relevancy for port. And uh, with their infrastructure that they have available to them, uh, growing uh, food is an excellent way to ensure relevancy uh, for their facilities. And so that's really exciting. I think if there's anything to be learned out of this particular hour together is that there's so much more to talk about when we talk there about is. Uh, aquaculture and uh, its use in, in our American shorelines. And uh, it's it's an exciting topic. I'm thrilled that you've invited us um, and happy to, to share more about this because I think we've just kind of the, hit the tip of the iceberg on a lot of, of interesting topics. So thank you very much for including the, the West Coast shellfish growers in this discussion and um, happy to Um, provide more information and certainly happy to have all of the listeners enjoy some West Coast shellfish, which you can find online from from various producers. Um, And then when restaurants open, please support your local restaurants and uh, eat shellfish.
0: Well, Margaret, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we scratched the surface. There's so much depth in this issue. And I think it's so important. really economically, culturally, uh, environmentally, and uh, we've got to continue the conversation. Um, please stay in touch with us. Let's talk about, I'd love to talk to some of your your farmers, the aquaculture folks who get out there and do it, the folks who've, who've figured it out. Um, so we, we are open to, to advancing the discussion. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Bob Rowe, the Executive Director of the East Coast Shellfish Association from Rhode Island. And from the beautiful city of Seattle. Margaret Pilaro, the Executive Director of the West Coast Shellfish Growers Association. Uh, two of the great people who keep the American Shoreline working. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the American Shoreline Podcast.
4: Thank you, Peter and Tyler. It's been fun.